Well, this morning we continue the series entitled A Consideration of Children, Church Membership, and the Ordinances. And last week we began to consider matters of hermeneutics, that is, principles of interpretation, and more specifically, principles for interpreting the book of Acts. We need to make sure that we are applying proper hermeneutics as we read and study the book of Acts. And this is important because many go astray in a number of ways, a number of areas of doctrine and practice, not just in this particular area of children, church membership, and baptism and the ordinances, but uh, in a lot of other areas because of a lack of proper hermeneutics applied to the book of Acts. So we saw last time that the book of Acts is historical narrative, and that affects how we interpret it. The book of Acts written by Luke, identified in Colossians 4, verse 14, as Luke the physician. Uh, He was the author of not only Acts, but also the Gospel of Luke. And he was a very meticulous historian. And when you consider his introductions found at the beginning of each book, the Gospel of Luke in chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, and in Acts, Acts 1, verses 1 and 2, we see that he undertook to compile an account of the things that took place in the life of Jesus, that's the Gospel of Luke, and then after his ascension into heaven, in the formative days of the church, during the times of the apostles, that's the book of Acts. And Luke says that he, quote, investigated everything carefully from the beginning and undertook, he says, to write it out in consecutive order. And that's what we have in the Gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts, Acts being our main consideration right now in this study. Uh, We simply call it Acts, but it is the Acts of the Apostles. Ephesians 2 verse 20 says that the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And so the book of Acts which written the Acts of the Apostles during this time, this foundational period in the life of the church, this formative time in the life of the church. And so we have a record of these formative days in the church. And as such, the book of Acts is historical narrative. So last time we talked about the very important hermeneutical, hermeneutical principle, namely, interpret the historical narratives by the didactic. We have to be careful when interpreting historical narrative, make sure that we interpret them in light of the didactic portions of Scripture. And I gave you examples of how we can go astray if we take what is described in the narrative as if it were commanded and required. And we have to be careful not to extrapolate doctrine from historical narratives without the support of the didactic teaching portions of Scripture. So interpret the historical narratives by the didactic. If we do not take this hermeneutical principle to heart and practice it, if we're not careful, but instead simply take historical narrative as prescriptive, as if it were didactic and commanded, then we'll end up with a plethora of errors regarding doctrine and practice. So you remember last time I gave you these Uh, Couplets of words, descriptive, prescriptive, formative, normative, extraordinary, and ordinary. 
descriptive, that which gives an account of something, that describes something, prescriptive, that which is required and commanded. So not everything that is descriptive is necessarily prescriptive. Not everything that we have as an account in historical narrative is to be taken as commands, prescribed. Then you have formative and normative. Formative means relating to the time when something is starting to develop. And normative means conforming to standards or norms, conforming to what is usual and typical. So not everything that we see in the formative days of the church are meant to be normative for the church today. That's very important to understand. And then I use the two words extraordinary and ordinary. Extraordinary, in fact, miraculous. Miracles took place in the early church for a specific purpose, a specific historical redemptive purpose at that time. And what is extraordinary and even miraculous that we read in the book of Acts is not necessarily ordinary that is expected to be in the church today. And so there are some extraordinary and miraculous things taking place in the early part early days of the church, and God is doing these things for a specific purpose, much of it related to the fulfillment of specific prophecy and for the unity of the church. And there were extraordinary and miraculous things taking place in conjunction with the preaching of the word, the preaching of the gospel in relationship to conversions and even surrounding baptisms. Those formative years containing the extraordinary and even the miraculous are not necessarily setting a standard for what is normative and ordinary in relationship to baptism today. To reason that because there were immediate baptisms upon profession of faith in the book of Acts, that we should, in fact, must do the same today is to ignore the extraordinary and miraculous nature of those days in the church. We do not have people speaking in tongues today upon conversion. That's a whole other subject, but I say that as a matter of fact. That's what we believe. It's not to be normative. Again, some of you may still be wrestling with that, but it's not normative today. If we did see people speaking in tongues today, not that we will, but if that were still normative for today, then we might baptize immediately, but we don't have that. Therefore, without the supernatural miraculous signs and some of those signs confirming one's profession of faith, we must affirm one's profession another way, namely through examination and observation. Does this person understand and believe the gospel? Does the person have a credible profession of faith? What are the signs of faith, the fruit of faith that we see in the scriptures? And are there manifestations of the Spirit in the work of regeneration in the life of that person? That's normative. That's how we are to conduct ourselves today as a church, and we as pastors, and we together as a church, as we consider who should be baptized and become members of the visible church and partake in communion. So how is understanding this tied to and vitally important when it comes to the subject of church membership, the ordinances, and children. Here's why. One argument, and really the main argument that I've heard through the years, 
goes like this. In the book of Acts, baptism immediately followed one's profession of faith. And they were immediately added to the church. Therefore, waiting a period of time between a person's profession of faith and baptism and being received as a member of the local church is unbiblical, the argument goes. For we must follow the book of Acts. And it's clear, they might say, in the book of Acts that upon one's profession of faith, they were immediately baptized and added to the number. And then the argument goes like this. It's extended to children. The same argument is then applied to children, even young children. Children, they would say, even young children should be baptized upon the first profession of faith. Now, you might have slight variations, and if you talk with someone that has a slight variation, say, well, I don't necessarily believe that with a four-year-old who professes faith. There needs to be a time of maturity. Okay, now you're getting outside of your hermeneutical principle that you've applied to the book of Acts. That's normative. You're now saying, well, in certain cases, we might wait to discern the person's profession of faith. No, the argument has to be consistent. And the argument usually goes, in the book of Acts, we see immediate baptisms upon profession of faith. There's no waiting period. And that should be applied to children as well. But your pastors believe this argument and line of reasoning falls short for a number of reasons and on many levels. First, as it pertains to so-called spontaneous and immediate baptisms found in Acts, again, as historical narrative, more thought and hermeneutical care needs to be given to what is descriptive as distinguished from what is prescriptive. What is an account of what took place as distinguished from what is required and commanded to, be take, to take place in every circumstance in the practice of the church? Not only then, but for today. Secondly, we would say we need to consider, again, the formative days of the church. Uh, these are, excuse me, formative days of the church and not necessarily normative for the church today. And then thirdly, the miracles that God was doing in those formative days of the church had some bearing on what was practiced then versus what is practiced ordinarily and should be practiced ordinarily today. For example, it's true that those who believed were immediately baptized at least the same day in the book in Acts chapter 2. But that was the day of Pentecost when the Spirit came as Jesus had promised. And those, there was this coming of the Spirit with tongues of fire. Visibly, it was seen, it was heard as they spoke in known languages at the time. It was a miraculous event. Their conversion was attested to by and affirmed by the Holy Spirit in a miraculous way. That's not what we're looking for today. If that were normative today, and it's not, and those who believe spoke in tongues is a sign that they received the Holy Spirit, then we might baptize rather immediately. But today, both examination of a person's profession and some measure of observation of a person's life in order to discern his or her profession are both wise. For the New Testament epistles, the didactic portions of Scripture, speak of the danger of 
false professors who do not have saving faith. It speaks of the fruit of faith that can be observed and examined. It speaks of the importance of pastors and the church knowing those who are being baptized and are identifying with the local church. And therefore, baptism, apart from examination and observation, is not wise or biblical. We would not be faithful shepherds of souls, nor careful in our protection of the church, if we immediately baptize simply upon one's profession of faith, verbal profession. And, as I kind of rushed through last time, the argument related to baptizing children falls on its face since the fact is that there are no explicit accounts of children being baptized and no explicit accounts of children being added to the number of the local church in the book of Acts or anywhere else in the New Testament. That's very important to understand. You know, as we walk through this and, and begin to just build kind of the, the case, so to speak, for the, the principles that we have from Scripture as to who should be baptized and who should be received as members of the local church and how that applies to children. It's very important to understand. There are no explicit accounts of children being baptized in the book of Acts. There are no explicit accounts of children being added to the number of the local church in the book of Acts, nor anywhere in the New Testament. There is no record of children being baptized. There are no precedents for this practice. What is explicit and explicitly described by the meticulous historian Luke is that adult men and women were baptized. Adult men and women were added to the number of the church. And we see that very clearly in the book of Acts. In Acts 2, verse 41, on the day of Pentecost, it simply says this, that that day there were added, well, first it says, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. So there it just says souls. He, he's emphasizing their souls saved. But then in Acts 5, verse 14, it says, and all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of, and now he identifies them, not just souls, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their numbers. So who was added to their number? Men and women. Aner, gune, the two Greek words that refer to adult men and women, not to children. Not the word technon, not paideia, various other words used for children. And in Acts 8, verse 12, <clears throat> again, the meticulous historian Luke says, But when they believed Philip, preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, and he identifies them. And men on air and women, gune, alike. Men and women alike. And additionally, a search for and careful study of children in the New Testament epistles will demonstrate that they are addressed as it pertains to the family in relationship to their parents and not in relationship to the church, to the elders of the church, and so on. Children are called to obey their parents, not elders. As I noted last week in my sermon in Titus 2, which describes a spiritually sound church, men and women are mentioned, not children. All of this is conspicuous. And this should shape our understanding 
of the relationship of baptism, church membership, and the ordinance of the Lord's table as it pertains to children. So I've sought to lay an important hermeneutical principle in relationship to the historical narrative of the book of Acts. Interpret historical narrative by the didactic. I've sought to demonstrate that Luke does say explicitly something about who was being baptized and who was being added to the number of the church. And therefore those who would have been included at the table of the Lord. They were adults. It's very explicit not children. The baptism of children is, not just, is, is just not explicitly found in the book of Acts nor anywhere in the New, Te- New Testament. Now, there are other things to consider, a number of other things, and we, we'll begin to do that again today, but it's vitally important when considering this subject of children, church membership, and the ordinances, what I've just said, the hermeneutical principle and what is explicitly mentioned about who was baptized, who was added to the number of the church in the book of Acts. Now, this morning, I want to lay another important foundation that affects our understanding of the subject at hand. This has to do with the relationship of baptism, church membership, and the Lord's table. The relationship of those three things. Or we might say it this way, the relationship of the ordinances, baptism in the Lord's table, to church membership, those who are identified with the visible church, the local church. And this too should affect our discussion and understanding of how these things relate to children. So first, consider the relationship of church membership and the ordinances. Those three are related, they're connected. Again, let me just pause for a minute and say this. Some of you may be saying, I just want to know the answer as to what age a child can be baptized. If you're going to focus on that, you're going to miss everything that's being said. It's it's like a child, this isn't a perfect illustration, but it's like a teenager who says to his parents, when can I get my license and drive? And they just want to know, tell me the age. And so you begin to explain to your child, well, there's a lot of considerations in regard to that. There's consideration of money, (laughs) a car, buying a car, insurance, and the cost that's going to be to our policy. But there's also some considerations of maturity. Are you ready for that? But the child's not hearing it because the child's just tell me the age. I just want to know the age. No, no, no. You're missing the point. It's not about the age. It's about maturity. But because they're looking for it, just give me the answer. They're not listening to what is fundamentally important about the answer to that. And so I just want to encourage you, if you're just looking for the age, you're going to miss what's being said that really is not about the age itself. So don't focus on age. Listen to what as we're seeking to be thoroughly biblical in explaining these things, the points, the arguments, so to speak, that are being made, and consider them. We'll get to some of those more specific things, but we're not going to give you, here's the age. That's not what we're going to do. Now, we'll talk about age, because it will relate to some things we're talking about, but we're not setting an age. So, don't be fixated on the age. So, for now, be fixated, if I can say it that way, on this. There's a relationship between baptism, 
church membership, and the Lord's table. Those three things are related in Scripture. They cannot be separated. In other words, you can't participate in one and refuse another. At least and not be biblical, for they are connected. They are related in Scripture. Baptism, church membership, the Lord's table. And not only are they related and connected, there is an order. There's an order to them, a correct biblical order. Baptism, church membership, the Lord's table. And to get them out of order would be unbiblical. Now, follow what I'm saying, because this will get to answering the question of consideration, I should say, of children, church membership, and the ordinances. So there's a relationship between the three. There's an order to the three. They're connected. They should not be separated. And there's an order to them. To get them out of order would be unbiblical. Now, I dare say that even if you have not previously thought much about how these three things are related. If I ask you certain questions, I believe your answers will demonstrate that you do indeed think they're related. And I dare say that even if you have not previously thought much about the order of those three things, baptism, church membership, the Lord's table, if you've not mused on these things or considered them much, if I were to ask you some questions, I believe your answers will demonstrate that you do indeed believe that there is an order among those three things, a biblical order. So here's a scenario. Suppose someone were to visit Grace Fellowship Church this Lord's Day, this morning, approach the pastors and say, I am a believer. I'd like to be baptized. However, I don't want to join Grace Fellowship Church. I'm not even sure I'll return here again. That's not to say I'm not going to go to church somewhere Just maybe not here. I haven't decided for sure. But will you baptize me? I'm a believer. What should your pastors do in that scenario? Would you be okay with when we have new member presentation that we add a baptism of someone that walked in the door and said, Hey, I'm a believer. Will you baptize me? But I don't want to join the church. What would you say if you were a pastor to that person? What do you believe would be a biblical response and why? Now, if you consider those kinds of things, then you'll begin to say, I need to have a biblical answer to this of why I would or would not do so. Now, here's another scenario. Suppose someone wants to join Grace Fellowship Church. They go through the membership process. They have a credible profession of faith. And yet they've never been baptized and refuse to be baptized. Should a person who refuses to be baptized join a local church? What should your pastors do in that case? What would you say to that person? What would you do if you were a pastor? What do you believe would be a biblical response and why? They want to join the church, but they do not want to be baptized. Or suppose that a person refused to be baptized, yet they want to come to the table of the Lord. Or they were baptized, but refused to come to the table of the Lord. Or suppose a person refused to join a local church, be accountable to a local church and its members, and yet desired to come to the table of the Lord. 
Again, what would you do in, in any of those scenarios? And we could give others and, and mix it up a little more. Maybe you've never thought about these things before. I have, and your pastors have. Hopefully you're thinking that in each of these scenarios there's something wrong. And hopefully as you think through them and you think through it biblically, you understand and you're connecting the dots. There's a relationship between baptism and church membership in the Lord's table, and there's an order to them. They are related. They are connected biblically. There is an order to them. Now, is there one verse that says, here is the relationship and the order of church membership and the ordinances? No, there's no one verse but there is biblical teaching on all three that demonstrates that there is a relationship, a connection, and an order among them. Let me show you that briefly from Scripture, and then let me make some application of these things to the discussion about children. Consider what we call the Great Commission. Uh, first in Mark chapter 16, where Jesus said, to his disciples in Mark 16, verses 15 and 16. Mark 16, verses 15 and 16. Listen, Jesus said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. Now, don't let your minds go to, oh, he who is believing to baptize shall be saved and arguments of baptismal regeneration versus not and all of that. Just for our purposes of our discussion, notice that there is preach the gospel, he who is believed and baptized. They're connected. Believing and being baptized shall be saved. Now we know there's a connection from what is more commonly called the Great Commission in Matthew 28 verses 18 to 20, when Jesus said to them, all authority has been given me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. So there, making disciples necessarily means baptism. What is the making of disciples? Well, we know from Scripture, comparing Scripture with Scripture, the gospel is preached. They must hear the truth. They must know the truth, believe the truth, and then they are baptized as disciples of Christ, identified with the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the gospel is preached. It's heard. The gospel is believed the believer is baptized. Now there's an order to that, right? I mean, we're Baptists. This isn't a discussion of paedo-baptism versus credo-baptism, but, but there's an order. Hear the gospel, believe the gospel, baptize. Not as paedo-baptists, you're born into a Christian family, you have Christian parents, you're baptized, you may or may not believe later, but that's not our discussion. Just notice that there's the gospel preached, the gospel believed, baptism, commanded, required. Now, turn to the book of Acts. <clears throat> and let me show you something that we see in the book of Acts that is normative. For we see it taught in the verses I just shared and in the epistles in the rest of the New Testament. Acts chapter 2, I'll just give you shorthand. Verse 38, Peter is preaching the gospel on the day of Pentecost. And so there's the general call of the gospel, Acts 2, verse 38. Peter said to them, repent 
and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So here there's a proclamation of the gospel. The gospel's preached. There's a call to believe and repent. Again, here he says repent, but we won't talk about the relationship of faith and repentance. That's not our discussion today. But when you see repent, he's calling them the faith in Christ to repent of their unbelief and now to believe in what he has preached. And each of you be baptized. So there's an order again. But then look in verse 41. So then those who had received his word, they did believe what was preached were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Peter preaches, the gospel is believed, received, believers are baptized, there's a connection and relationship and an order in these things. And so if you just consider those things, baptism now identifies you as a believer in the Lord Jesus, as a disciple of Christ. You're you're baptized, as Jesus said, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And Paul, when he is speaking of our spiritual union with Christ, being united with Christ, being baptized into Christ spiritually, he speaks of certain truths that are there in Romans chapter 6. Do you not know that All of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. And he talks about you're identified, united with Christ. But he uses the term baptism. We're immersed in the Christ. And then he says you're planted together, united with Christ. These spiritual realities are part of what is conveyed, part of what is, I should say, symbolized in baptism, in water baptism, in that ordinance. Your sins are washed away. You're united with Christ and his saving benefits. And the believer and the church are both nourished by those gospel truths as symbolized in the ordinance of baptism. So again, the gospel is preached, it's believed, the believer's then baptized. But he says again in Acts 2 verse 41 that on that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Baptism is not just an individual's public profession of faith, but it's entrance into the visible church. So you see the connection. Gospel preached, believed, baptized, and now added to their number. Entrance into the visible church. In baptism, the believer not only identifies himself as a disciple of Christ, but he identifies with the body of Christ, the church in its visible local expression on earth. Baptism is, as one person said, going public. Now, it's other things too, but among them, it's going public. Not only as a disciple of Christ, but going public in one's identification with believers in the local church. And there's no hint in Scripture of being united with Christ spiritually and not being united with Christ church with all the responsibilities and privileges that he requires of his people. It's very important to understand. No hint of someone being united with Christ, baptized as a picture of their union with Christ and their faith in Christ, but then being disassociated from the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13 says this, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Now again, this is speaking of a spiritual union and baptism, but 
these spiritual realities are conveyed or symbolized in the ordinances. So when someone is baptized, they're not baptized individually. That's not normative. It would be extraordinary or unusual circumstances for that to take place. So now we get back to the book of Acts. Remember the Ethiopian eunuch? So he was baptized, and it seems rather private, but there we're on a missionary frontier where there is no local church. That's not ordinary. So ordinarily, when someone is baptized, they're not only baptized in professing faith in Christ, going public in that sense, but they're going public identified with the people of God. Ordinarily, that takes place in the body of Christ, a local church. So the baptized believer is identified with the visible church with all the privileges and responsibilities therein. The baptized believer is not just united with the universal church, but through baptism, he chooses to identify with the local and visible expression of that universal church, committing to and, listen, submitting to those believers with all the one another's of Scripture accountable to the believers in that church along with its pastors. You assemble with that church. You worship with that church on the Lord's Day. You minister with and build up that church using your spiritual gifts. You witness with that church. You submit to that church. So the believer is baptized and added to not only the universal church, but the number of those identified in the local church, the local assembly, you're added to the church. And what are we to do together? Acts 2 verse 42, having been added to the church, says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now the breaking of bread here is a reference not to just eating meals together, but to the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table. So now, having believed, being baptized, identified with the local church, added to its number, now there is the regular being devoted to. This is something that is continually done. They're devoting themselves to what's one of those things. The breaking of bread. When the Apostle Paul addresses abuses of the Lord's table in the local church at Corinth, he says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty, Therefore, when you meet together, he speaks of the meeting together, the visible church together, observing the table of the Lord. And he addresses various abuses and he instructs them regarding the Lord's table. The church, those added to our number through baptism, identified with the local assembly, submitting to one another, accountable to one another, building up one another, those added through baptism are now regularly observing the table of the Lord. Who comes to the table? Who is admitted to the table? Who is expected and called to come to the table? Baptized believers who've been added to the church and identified with a local assembly. So do you see the relationship, the connection between those three things? Baptism, church membership, and the Lord's table. And do you see the order of them? This is why we fence the table in that way. 
This is why when we come together in communion, I look out, and if I see there are those who are not members of our church, it's often there, not often, but sometimes there have been, I look and I see, these are just all members of Grace Fellowship Church. I don't need to fence the table in this way, for I know they've been baptized, they're, and they've been added to our number, and now they're coming to the table of the Lord. But, but often I'll look out and I'll see there are people who are not members of this local assembly, and we need to be reminded, and all of us often need to be reminded, there is a connection and an order of these things. So I say, are you a believer? If you're not a believer, don't partake. Are you a believer who's been baptized? Because there's no hint of someone being a believer and not being baptized. And are you a member in good standing with a local church? If it's not this one, a gospel preaching church, if it's not this one, is it another one? And we, we fence the table in that way because there is a connection and an order that we see in Scripture. So let me make some statements that maybe will help in understanding these things. Again, talking about the, the ordinances as it pertains ultimately to, to children. That's where we're heading. First statement, baptism is ordinarily bound to joining a local church. Now, I just say ordinarily because there are exceptions, but the exceptions aren't the rule. The exception would be someone's on the, the frontier of the mission field. They are church planters, and they have preached the gospel, and someone believes. They might baptize them before there is, as we've seen in Titus, things that are set in order. There might not be leadership. There might not even be other believers. But that's the exception. Make sure you don't make decisions about doctrine and church polity based on exceptions unless you're in the exception. We're not. So baptism is ordinarily bound to joining a local church, identifying with a local church. The Lord's table, second statement, is tied to the fellowship of a local church made up of baptized believers. The Lord's table is tied to the fellowship of a local church made up of baptized believers. Now, there are exceptions. There might be someone here who's a member of another local church. But now that's why we fence the table again in that way. Are you a believer who's been baptized and a member of another gospel preaching church? And so we have, in that sense, an open communion if you meet those qualifications. And the person must examine themselves to see if that's true. If they don't, then they... They're not being honest. Third statement. These three things, baptism, church membership, and the Lord's table, must not be gotten out of order or disassociated. They can't be gotten out of order. I don't even know if that's the way you say it. That's how I say it growing up in North Carolina. And they can't be disassociated. There should not be members who are not baptized. There should not be those who partake in the Lord's table who have not been baptized. There should not be those who partake in the Lord's table but are not united with and have not submitted to a local church. There's a connection. They're associated. There's an order. And we have to be careful to make sure we acknowledge biblically that association, relationship, connection, and order if we're going to practice them rightly and biblically. Fourth statement. The ordinances are church ordinances. 
They are of and relating to the local church, along with its pastors who oversee souls and oversee the practice of the ordinances. The ordinances are church ordinances. They are not family ordinances. They are not parachurch ordinances. We have a couple of Reformed Theological Seminary students in our church. RTS does not baptize people. It's not a church. It's parachurch. Para meaning alongside of. They say we're to come alongside of the, the local church to help by training pastors. But we're not the church. CBTS, Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, does not baptize believers. They're not a church. Youth camps should not baptize believers. They're not a church. You send your kids to a youth camp. They profess faith in Christ. Some will baptize them. Right there. They're not a church. It's not a parachurch ordinance. It's not an, uh, the ordinances are not for Christian organizations or for Christian events. I mean, even Billy Graham knew that. Sorry, that, that was maybe not the right way to say that. But, but I mean, you didn't see come just as you are, be baptized and then leave. It, it's now we want to connect you to a local church. Now, the ordinances symbolize and proclaim gospel truths. The church is nourished by them. We observe and partake in them together as one body. And the Lord's table is withheld from unbelievers and from those who profess to know him, but by their unrepentant sinner acting like unbelievers. Church discipline. That's why it's called excommunication, communion. We share together in the body and blood of Christ. The passage talks about we are sharers of his blood, his body, and we are sharers with one another. It's where we get the word communion from. And excommunication means out of communion. They are not allowed to come to the table because they're either unbelievers or in the sense of excommunication, they've been disciplined by the church because they're acting like unbelievers and their profession of faith is called into question. So these are church ordinances, not parachurch ordinances, and they're not individual ordinances. Sometimes we can think of baptism as an individual's decision since it's just one person coming to be baptized. But there's a pastor in the water too. And he's got to give an account to God. And there's a church that's observing. And there's a church that that one is identifying with. So when you understand the connection, you understand it's not an individual ordinance, and that's part of the, I think, problem today with the carelessness with baptism is people just think, I'm ready to be baptized, I want to be baptized, baptize me. That's the scenario if someone comes in and says, hey, will you baptize me? I don't want to join the church, but I just want to be baptized. It's more thinking about them, but not in connection to Christ's body. You don't baptize yourself. You don't baptize yourself in isolation. You don't get baptized and then do your own thing. You're baptized into the church. So they're not parachurch ordinances. They're not individual ordinances. They're church ordinances and not family ordinances. The church is not the family. The family is not the church. Both are created by God and are spheres of His authority whereby He's glorified. 
But don't confuse the two or put those two things, the ordinances that don't belong to the family in that jurisdiction. These are not family ordinances. Now, why is that important? Well, who determines who should be baptized? The church, through its pastors, with a process that's in place that is tied to church membership. It's not the individual. It's not the parents who decide that. And certainly not a child. Now, that's not to say parents don't contribute to explaining if there is a child of the maturity that they desire to be baptized and there's a maturity. We'll talk about that. Just table what that means for a minute. That's for next week. It's not to say that the parents' input's not important, but just so you, you know, sometimes I, I, I think it's helpful to explain this. So I'm, I'm a pastor. I've always been a pastor here at Grace Fellowship Church. I never decided when my children were baptized. Another pastor decided that. Another pastor sat with my children when they were of an age that it seemed to be of appropriate maturity and could be baptized and join the church and fulfill those responsibilities and even be disciplined should it be required and come to the table of the Lord. Another pastor decided that. As a parent, I said, here, I can give you my input as to what I've observed, but I submit to my elders regarding that. Now, in conclusion, let me transition more specifically into how this pertains to our understanding of children, church membership, and the ordinances. Those who baptize children or are in favor of baptizing children often do not associate all three of those, baptism, church membership, in the Lord's table, or apply all three to children. Children are often in churches baptized but not received as members. Or children are allowed to come to the table of the Lord but are not baptized and are not members of the local church. And in many churches, there's a disassociation of the three. And it's even disassociated more and it's magnified more as it pertains to children. So, on this subject of children and church membership and the ordinances, you cannot disassociate the three with children, parents, children. You can't say, my child or a child can't say, oh, I want to be baptized, but I'm not ready for church membership. Or I want to partake in the Lord's table, but I don't think I want to publicly share my testimony before I'm baptized. Now you're disassociating them, and often that happens. When someone is ready to be baptized, they should be ready to join a church with all its responsibilities and privileges, submitting to the church, to its leaders, and then be able to come to the table of the Lord, appropriately, biblically examining themselves. Let me read from an article that I think is helpful, just to reiterate some of these things. The person writes this, The New Testament is clear that church membership, baptism, and the Lord's Supper all go together. In other words, the person who participates in one should participate in the other two. And the person who isn't ready for one isn't ready for the other two. 
Baptism brings someone into church membership. The Lord's Supper maintains that membership. This explains why there's no New Testament category for someone who's baptized but not a church member or someone who's a member but isn't partaking in the Lord's Supper. All three go together. The person writes, the New Testament, this is important, the New Testament gives a single one-size-fits-all description of church membership. There's no female membership versus male membership. There's no Gentile membership versus Jewish membership. There's no slave membership versus free membership. Listen, there's no young children membership versus adult membership. You don't find it in the Bible. There is, simply put, membership. And he writes, and here's the rub. New Testament membership includes tasks that are an unnatural fit for children. For example, submission to elders, participation in the church discipline process, wherein someone not only submits his own life and doctrine doctrine for congregational oversight, which can lead to excommunication, but he's expected to be a part of this process which oftentimes requires hearing a certain degree of detail about these situations. Participation in the more common situation, wherein a member is commanded to point out sin to another member. Again, these are are responsibilities of membership. We're getting ready to receive members on December 17th, and they'll publicly commit to certain things. We don't have two-tiered, like, well, here's some who maybe don't understand those things and maybe aren't ready for that. And when it says that you submit to the God-appointed leadership for the care and shepherding of your soul and for discipline, should it be required, that's true of if children are admitted for them too. So he writes, These tasks and more are commanded by the New Testament for all church members. Therefore, if someone isn't yet ready for the New Testament's understanding of church membership, then they're not ready for baptism of the Lord's Supper. Why is that? Because they're connected, interconnected, and there's an order, and you can't separate them. So the kind of questions that we need to ask are things like this. Is there sufficient maturity? I'm not talking about spiritual maturity. I'm talking about maturity as a person. Can he or she carry out the responsibilities of church membership? Is a person of sufficient maturity that he's ready for it and even understands what's required? And in the matter of a sinning and unrepentant believer, Matthew 18, the situation may get to a point where Jesus said, tell it to the church. That would... That means to the church, not to, oh, well, there's junior church and there's real church. No, to the church. So is that person of sufficient maturity that they're ready for that responsibility of church membership? And is the person of sufficient maturity to participate, therefore, in those matters of church discipline? And can faith even be adequately discerned as to its credibility and genuineness at very young ages? Again, I'll be addressing that subject in more detail, that last question. But let me me just do this. Let me just speak to you, children. Children, to be baptized, you have to be able to give a credible profession of faith. 
You must be able to explain the content of the gospel. What is it that you believe? What does the Bible teach about these things that we call the gospel? And you have to be able to explain this, not with the aid of your parents, but you. Children, you must understand what baptism is, for knowledge of what it symbolizes is what edifies and feeds your soul, not the act itself. You must understand, children, the Lord's table, what the Scripture says about the Lord's table. You must be able to examine yourself biblically at the table of the Lord, lest there be the discipline of the Lord for treating those things lightly and carelessly. 1 Corinthians 11 Beginning in verse 27, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. These are weighty matters. Children, you need to understand what the Bible teaches about these things. What does the Lord, you have to be able to discern the body and blood of Christ, and come to the table of the Lord examining yourself from the Scriptures. Children, you must submit to the elders of this church, submitting to the shepherding of your souls for the spiritual good and growth of your soul. And children, if you stray from sound doctrine or you stray into unrepentant sin, you're subject to the discipline of Christ's church. So these are weighty things. But do you see how when we understand biblically that these things just aren't separated, we don't say, oh, well, that might be too much for a child. So let's just have them baptized, but they're not church members. Or maybe they're not ready to be baptized, but can't they just partake of the Lord's table? Do you see how a biblically informed understanding of those three things and the relationship of them, the interconnectedness of them, the order of them, informs us regarding who should be baptized in this question of children. Maturity is required. So parents and children, at this point, let me just encourage you, don't separate the three as you're working through these things. If you understand how they're related biblically, then that will inform you, as it has your pastors, as to who should be baptized, who should join the church, and who should partake in communion. And your pastors believe that there must be a measure of maturity in the person, not just talking about spiritual maturity, but maturity of a person as a person in order to even understand and partake in such responsibilities. And so next week, I'll demonstrate this more from the Scriptures. So again, this is a process Again, as I said, be patient as we go through and work through these things point by point and step by step in this consideration of children, church membership, and the ordinances. It may appear right now, it's like, oh, this just sounds so negative. It's because a lot of it is me dealing with those who have just the argument, like I mentioned, oh, the book of Acts says this, and therefore it's this simple. We ought to do that with children. No, it's more complex than that. We need to be thoroughly biblical. We don't want to be superficial. There's some things we need to, to lay. And a part of it is, oh, we have to address some misunderstandings. But then eventually, we'll talk about, too, well, then what about children and how do we nurture them? 
not only as parents, but as a church, so that they get to that point, God willing, they're saved by the grace of God, to be baptized and join the church and partake in communion as mature believers in the Lord Jesus. So let's go to the Lord and and commit these things to Him. Father, I thank You for this time and continue to pray for Your aid and help and the brief time that I have each Lord's Day to try to address these things. And, And Lord, for us as pastors, as we share how we've come to these conclusions, what our beliefs are, we just pray again for humility among us all to be, Lord, open to the Scriptures, to be thorough, to seek the good of all involved, the church, Lord, to young people. God, save our young people, we pray. Save them at young ages, we pray. And God, we pray and look forward to those who have believed on Christ, to the day in which where they are baptized and join the local church and come to the table of the Lord. Lord, help us in these things to have discernment for the good of your church again, for the good of your people, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.